There is screaming and shouting coming from all corners of the ship. The Batavia has struck a reef, and after the bow listed upwards, it came crashing down again, impaling itself firmly at a strange angle on the shattered mass of coral below. People and equipment are everywhere amidst broken and crushed limbs. Rivulets of blood are trickling down the tilting deck. Shortly afterwards, the trumpet blasts out, issuing orders to all sailors to assemble on the main deck. We make our way out, and when we appear, there is chaos and disorder up there as well. We find Pelsard and Jakobzon arguing in a heated exchange. What have you done that through your reckless carelessness you have run this noose round our necks? Pelsart shouts at the captain, who responds that he'd seen the white water but trusted the eye of his gunner, who told him that it was just the moonlight shining off the wave crests. Now, more men appear, but not nearly every sailor. Pelsart says something about needing to see the cargo, and he storms off. The captain turns around and surveys the scene and the restless, scared men around him. There is a constant wailing coming from the passenger cabins, and Jakobson looks towards it and spits on the ground in this direction. How could this have happened? Could they have hit the islands that de Haltman had warned about years ago? Jakobson must have badly misjudged their position, and now he has a massive burden on his shoulders. Likewise, the Batavia also has a massive burden inside her, all her freight weighing her down, crushing her against the jagged reef. Jakobson must do something to lighten the ship, or she will surely be doomed. And so, he orders all the cannons to be pushed into the water. His main hope is that, just like during the storm in Holland, seven months previously, they've become trapped at low tide, so that when the tide comes back in, hopefully they will be lifted back to safety. Luck, however, is not on their side this time. As the water begins to recede, and he realises that they hit at high tide, and they are truly stuck. Jakobson looks up at the main mast, which is leaning dangerously backwards from the reef. It is so big and heavy that we can hear the creaking as the whole ship threatens to crack in half under its weight. Jakobson knows this, and he knows that it will happen very soon, spelling doom for everybody aboard. So he calls for an axe. The only option now is to cut the mast down. This is not something done lightly, as it signals the end for the great new ship. Cutting the mast down is an act of absolute desperation and one of finality. We have no choice though, and so, in accordance with Dutch tradition, due to the extreme consequences of such an action, the captain must take the first swing. We all stand watching him take hold of the axe. We contemplate the dire direction our lives have taken. With no mast, we are stuck. The sun is beginning to rise too, and in the early grey light, we can see the emptiness around us, but for a scattering of low islands a few miles to the west. The captain hesitates no longer. He steps forward and... As he brings the axe back, it is almost as if everybody watching holds their breath collectively. It takes a while to hack through the mast. It should be done in a fashion to ensure that it falls 
in the least damaging way possible into the sea. But these are panicky and these are disordered times, and men are not thinking straight or clearly about the task at hand. As the weight of the great oak takes over from the axe wielders, every one of us realises that this too is all going horribly wrong. With a final crack, the mast tears itself asunder and falls straight down the middle of the ship, tearing through deck after deck. Anyone below it has certainly been crushed, and now the ship lists again, its fate sealed. In unknown waters, somewhere near the great unexplored continent of Hetzod Land, every person and thing on the Batavia is now aboard a very leaky boat. Ship is going down. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This is episode 5 of The Unfortunate Voyage of the Batavia. Jewels and money first. This episode is brought to you by Coral. Coral, being destroyed by corporations since the early 1600s. With the mast down and the ship doomed, Jakobson and Pelsart put their differences aside and begin to organise the evacuation. In the light of day, we can clearly see the islands of Hauptmann's Abrolis, two larger islands rising a few miles in the distance, and several smaller ones closer to our wreck. Batavia has two small support boats, a 32-foot yawl and a 40-foot longboat. Pelsart and Jakobson call on the sailors to start hauling both passengers and goods onto them and to transport everything and everybody to the nearest of the islands. Their orders are ignored by many sailors, however, who wonder out loud why the hell should they obey the commands of the people who got them into this mess in the first place. To these sailors, this is the opportune time to get well and truly drunk, so they disobey orders and they make their way into the hold to help themselves to the liquor and the wine. The authority of the VOC and the gentleman 17 suddenly feels half a world away, which it is, and so they toast to their misfortune. Others, however, realise that in their current situation, they have no choice but to work together. One man is working particularly hard to get as many people and things onto the boats as possible, in as orderly a way as possible. He is a man we have seen only briefly at various times throughout the journey, but now he is taking charge and proving himself more than capable of organising the mayhem. His name is Viba Hayes, and the reason why we haven't seen much of him is that he is a soldier, and he spent the vast majority of this trip cramped up in the bowels of the ship. Now, since the disaster struck, He's up on deck, lifting, hauling, and as much as he can, helping people stay calm and collected during the evacuation. Both Pelsart and Captain Jakobson are coming and going in the chaos. Pelsart in his bright red overcoat and shrieking all the while about ensuring the safety of the VOC's greatest concern, the silver and the jewels on board. The captain, he's overseeing the order of passengers and trying to keep the crew in line with lightening the weight of the ship by hauling anything they can off and into the water. 
Each has their own priority. For Pelsart, it is the goods. For the captain, it is his crew and passengers. Viva Hayes also manages to organise soldiers and others to assist in the evacuation, and the work continues throughout the day. Three times, the longboat moves between the Batavia and the nearby tiny island, and by nightfall, 180 people, 20 casks of bread, and some barrels of water have been successfully transferred to it, along, of course, with a box of jewels from Pelsart's cabin. Sailors, accountants, soldiers, women and children, marooned on what is no more than a sandy scrap of coral sticking out of the sea. We have been busy following Pelsart's command to move the 12 huge chests of silver out of the great cabin and onto the deck, in preparation for moving them to the safety of dry land. We are straining with the weight of the last one when we see Captain Jakobson on the yawl, yelling out to Pelsart on the deck. Apparently chaos is reigning on the island. The survivors have discovered that the island has no natural source of food or water, and so they are eating and drinking as many of the provisions from the ship as they can get their hands on. No matter what Jakobson said, they just wouldn't listen to him. Only the commander of the fleet, Pelsart himself, would be able to talk sense into these crazed people. Pelsart looks at the giant chests of money, and he decides that they're probably safer here on the wreck than in the hands of the mob on the island. He grabs Geronimus and commands him to keep watch over the precious cargo. He vows to return as soon as possible for the money and also for the 70 or so men left behind. But just after his departure, the weather turns for the worse. And so it is that we are stuck on this godforsaken wreck as the sun goes down and everything only descends further into chaos. Everybody gets drunk, with nobody there to tell them otherwise, those on board just help themselves to the officers' supplies of wine and cheese and all the other luxuries they'd been missing out on. Who knew how good life could be? One particularly drunk sailor decides to smash open one of the chests of coins on the deck with his axe. Plunging his hands into it, he finds silver and throws it into the air making it rain down upon him and his hysterically laughing companions. Upon realising that, by doing this, they probably signed their own death sentences, they hastily nail a plank of wood over the hole and they run away into the broken bowels of the ship to find more wine. Geronimus, meanwhile, has ensconced himself in the great cabin, sitting in the captain's chair, wearing gold chains draped around his neck, and bright, bejeweled rings on his fingers. Geronimus lazily runs his hand through a box of jewels as the men around him dance on the table and rummage through the various things that Pelsart had been so possessive and in charge of. A man named Reichert Walterzong hands Geronimus Pelsart's journal, which he mockingly reads to the amusement of those he has permitted to join him. He quotes from it, And they grievously assaulted Lucretia and covered her body in excrement and pitch. Hilarious. We try to be as inconspicuous as possible as we follow Geronimus' commands and pour the drinks. After finishing reading the journal aloud, Geronimus gives it back to Valtazon, 
who promptly tears it to pieces and throws it out the window. This scene looks like absolute trouble, and if we are not rescued tomorrow, then things are going to get very nasty indeed. The next day arrives, and still the captain and the upper merchant do not return. We see them though, in the distance, ferrying those lucky enough to have been rescued, and moving them from the tiny island they had spent the night on, to a larger one nearby. They make several trips, moving people and some supplies, from the one island to the other. But at the end of it all, a smaller group of them, plus the majority of the supplies, remain on the original small island. It is not until late in the day that we see the yawl slowly moving in our direction, making its way around the coral reef that has been our undoing. The wind is blowing southerly now, which makes any approach to the sinking ship a treacherous one, and the yawl is certainly struggling to avoid being pushed into the jagged and spiky mass. We can make out the bright red of Pelsart's cloak, standing eagerly, anxious to secure the VOC's valuables. But they cannot come any closer. It is obviously too dangerous. The sailors on the ship have spotted them too, and now hordes of drunken and terrified men are shouting into the face of the wind, screaming for Pelsart to come and pick us up. Geronimus arrives on deck, and he looks out at his boss with a bemused look on his face. He's obviously had a few drinks. He's not coming, he slurs. Who can swim? The other men look around, and a few eyes rest on us. Many of them know that we grew up along the rivers and that we can swim better than most, which isn't very difficult considering most people can't swim at all. We have no choice though, as the men on board have decided that it is us who must swim out to the yawl. The idea of jumping in is terrifying, but not as much as having to face them if we do not. So we dive into the pounding surf, and immediately the water soaks into our clothes, which begin to weigh us down. We fight and struggle against the wind, but we eventually find a current that runs a channel between sections of the reef, and it sucks us towards the yawl. When we reach the boat, we are exhausted and grateful for the hands that pull us up onto it. We don't get too long to rest, though, as already Pelsart is quizzing us about the goods on board. Have they been prepared for evacuation? Is Geronimus keeping everything under a tight watch, secure from thieving hands? We almost can't believe it, since, certainly, this has not been the priority of those who have remained on the sinking ship. Pelsart does not inquire at all about the men and their well-being. We tell him that those on board must be saved, that he must fetch them. He stares down at us, dripping wet and breathless on the deck of the small boat. With a sneer, he says that he cannot, but that we must swim back and give Geronimus his orders about what to do with the remaining goods and valuables. So, soon after, we are swimming again, back to the ship, the whole while struggling even more than we had before, against the current this time. We just avoid being carved up on the coral. When we reach the rope hanging off the side of Batavia, it takes all that remains of our strength to hold on as we are pulled up and onto the deck. Now it is Geronimus staring down at us, 
as we desperately gasp for breath and try to stay conscious. When we get our breath back, we tell him and the other drunken sailors standing around what Pelsart's orders were, that we must secure the valuables and prepare them for evacuation. The men break out into laughter. Not one of them could care less for these orders, especially Geronimus, who breaks out another bottle of brandy with which to toast the upper merchant and the VOC. As the men proceed to get more and more drunk, their joviality and laughter blends with anger, as they seem to comprehend just how worthless they really are in the eyes of the VOC. Being the messenger of Pelsart and his ridiculous priorities, we can feel their contempt begin to be more and more directed at us. As the night wears on, the ship cracks more and more frequently, and it continues on its slow but inexorable descent into the waves. And we feel more and more terrified by the situation and the drunken, aggressive men around us. We decide that we need to escape now. The swim to the boat had been nearly halfway the distance to the island where the large group of survivors were, and with the current giving us a push, we believe we can make it. So, when the majority of the men fall into a drunken stupor, we break a crate apart, and using one of the planks as a flotation device, we jump once more into the water. The wind is quietened down now. We find our way through the coral, and eventually feel the sand beneath our feet as we stumble out of the water and we collapse on the beach. We've made it to the bigger island, where we saw the people being ferried to yesterday. Suddenly, we are surrounded and we are being grabbed and pulled by a frenzied mob. They are demanding water and food. Did we bring any? Is any coming? People are dying. What is happening? Is there anybody on this side of the world who has now not stood over us and shouted down at us? We take as many deep breaths as we can and indicate that we are alone and we have no drinking water or food, nor do we know if any is coming. We ask them where Pelsart and the captain are and why have they not brought food. One man pushes to the front of the crowd, holding a large bread barrel, which he promptly throws down next to us. The barrel is empty and apparently Pelsart and Jakobson had delivered it that way, but with a note inside saying that they were looking for water and food and that they would return for everyone. They've abandoned us, one woman screams. They stayed on that small island with all the food and water for themselves and they've left us to die. The man next to us nods his head, tears streaming down his face. We start to take notice of them all now. These people who have been sitting on this tiny island for a day in the baking and unforgiving sun with almost no water. The people begin to wander off into their small groups of misery, it now being clear to them that we have brought nothing of use, but in fact only one more mouth to go dry. We see Lucretia amongst them, bedraggled and still with patches of pitch matted in her hair. She is one of the first to walk away. Now, just one man remains next to us. He is a short, weather-beaten middle-aged man who is neither sailor nor soldier, 
nor merchant. His name is Chaisbrecht Bastian Zone, and he is the predicant from on board the Batavia, the Calvinist preacher. He had once upon a time been a miller, but had fallen into debt, and so was now moving his entire family, wife and seven children, as well as their servant girl, to the Indies to start anew. Well, that's what he had been doing until the shipwreck. Now, he's standing and staring at us on a small island in the middle of nowhere. He asks us whether we are okay, and tells us that the situation on the island is particularly dire. No shit. We need to find water, the predicant says. If we pray together, maybe the good Lord will bless us with rain. We look at him skeptically. All we can see are blue skies and the sun beating down on us. It doesn't look like rain is coming anytime soon. There is some wildlife on and around the island. A colony of sea lions and thousands of seagulls abound, but many have already been slaughtered for their meat and the numbers will not be enough to keep us all alive for very long. Later that day, we spot Pelsart and Jakobson once again. They are back on board the longboat this time, with what seems to be all the remaining people, including Zvancha, and supplies from the tiny island. Perhaps now that the weather has cleared, they are making their way here, bringing the food and water which is so obviously and so desperately needed by us. As they make their approach to our island, another mob of people forms, yelling out and waving at them. Pelsart looks towards them, but then quickly turns the other way as his ship sails past us, seemingly headed towards the higher islands in the distance. We're doomed, someone says solemnly. Actually, probably more solemn than that. We're doomed. This island is going to be our final resting place. This is Batavia's graveyard. The unfortunate voyage of the Batavia will continue after this short break. As the day passes, more and more people give up hope of the others ever returning. We spend the night lying on the ground, the wind whipping the sand into our backs, wondering when will we wake up from this horrific nightmare. The following morning is a somber one. A malaise has set in, as nobody has energy left to do anything. Nobody, that is, except for Viba Hayes, the soldier we had seen so capably organising people on board the Batavia. We see him off to one side of the island, with a group of what must be fellow soldiers. They have collected all the rope, sails, and general flotsam that must have washed up on the island, in the same way that we had. It looks like they are building shelters, and securing sails in strange, upside-down cone formations. We have no idea what they're building, but Viber Hayes, he commands the men, and as they work, he gazes longingly skywards. Desperation, though, begins to take over the minds of those on Batavia's graveyard. After watching one man drink his own urine, we decide that's probably not such a bad idea. It's very salty, and it tastes like piss. But at least it's moisture. 
We wake up the next day to a buzz going around Batavia's graveyard, as once again, the sail of the longboat can be seen in the distance. Pelsart's group seems to be returning from the high islands. To the horror of everybody, though, like some sick joke, it soon becomes clear that the sail is moving the wrong way. Rather than coming towards us, it only gets smaller and smaller as it blends into the sun-hazed distance and floats steadily away from the entire group of islands, eventually disappearing completely from view. Upper Merchant Pelsard, Captain Jakobson, and the others, they have truly abandoned us now. The panic is palpable. Those traitors! From that moment on, The small island, which all the initial survivors had spent the first night on, but which Pelsart and the others had kept for themselves, that island is now known as Traitor's Island. For those of us on Batavia's graveyard, however, we are now on our own. We must look after ourselves and do whatever is necessary to stay alive. This mainly concerns getting water. Although it is known to have a terrible effect, some have started to drink salt water, which only makes their conditions worse. We go with a small group to catch as many seagulls as we can. As soon as we catch our first, we desperately bite into its neck, looking for an artery so that we can drink its blood and any water within. Others are doing this too, and we are all soon blood-stained and crazy-eyed having had but a small taste of what we so eagerly sought. By now, the sea lion numbers have really dwindled, but their salty blood also gets harvested. Its bitter and salty taste, it's only marginally better than that of our own piss. There is no order on Batavia's graveyard, so some of the elder men decided to follow VOC protocol and start a RAD, a council, to ensure that the authority of the company is maintained even in the most unique and exceptional circumstances. The Rudd will be made up of, amongst others, the Predicant, the Surgeon, and the Captain's Clerk. We think this idea is ridiculous, as we just saw the authority of the VOC sail away into the distance. At the moment... Our only interest is survival. We don't really see why desperate and dying people will care what some council of old men has to say. But the Rad is formed the following day, and they decide that the best place to get fresh water, our number one need, is from the stricken Batavia. The predicant says that his servant girl is a particularly strong swimmer. And so maybe she can swim out to the ship and get whatever supplies can be found there. While this is a good idea in theory, someone tells him that should his servant girl survive the swim, there's no way she would survive the men on the ship. Bassianson says that if we remain faithful, God will guide her and us. To everybody's surprise, she does make it to the ship and back. But all she manages to bring with her are a few barrels of dried but now soggy meat and a small barrel of water, 
nowhere near enough for everybody. Those who are desperate enough and strong enough still to win the fight manage to get a mouthful of water. Many, many more are left with nothing. The plan worked, but it did not yield much at all. Quite typical for an administrative council. The servant girl reports on the state of the ship, and that though they may have supplies, the ship is definitely sinking. On board, most of the men who cannot swim are sitting there drinking and waiting for death to arrive. They had begged her for assistance, obviously all drunk, and then quickly turned nasty after they learned that Pelsart and Jakobson had abandoned them as well. She had to make a hasty exit with all that she had managed to grab. Another 24 hours pass, and now people begin to die. Already, 10 people have succumbed to dehydration and general awfulness. Remember the good old days, when we were on a stinking ship, in the tropics, drinking fluorescently green water? Oh, how we long for those days! Here, there is nothing. We have some small shelter thanks to Viber Hayes and his men, who have also convinced the Rad to let them run water-searching expeditions, digging holes all around the island. Unfortunately, all this results in is more of nothing. People have begun to suck on pebbles in an attempt to create some kind of moisture in their mouths. It doesn't work. Trust us, we tried. Our tongue feels like bloated sandpaper, and to be honest, still tastes slightly of seagull blood. The sun continues to beat down, and we all try to cram into these tiny sheltered areas. Hopelessness setting in amongst all of us. The next day, though, the predicant's prayers are finally answered. The most glorious thing for a parched, shipwrecked person on a desert island? Rain. It pummels down. Each and every person stands for minutes, simply raising their heads and open mouths to the sky, tongues reaching out for salvation from the heavens. It is now that we see what an absolute champion of the game Viber Hayes really is. Those upside-down cones that we saw him constructing days earlier? It turns out, they are for catching and channeling rain into empty barrels that he'd had placed around strategically. Viber Hayes, he is a man who thinks ahead. And because of him, we now have enough water to keep us alive for the foreseeable future. Over the next few days, spirits are momentarily lifted, as everybody can stop thinking of immediate death and just start contemplating a long and drawn-out death on this island of nothingness. High spirits is definitely too loaded a term, though. Everybody is still miserable, just a little bit less so. The council is trying its best to establish a bit of order and authority, but sailors, soldiers... And civilians alike all have plenty to say about what should and could be done. Ten days after it struck the reef, the Batavia has mostly slipped underwater. Now just the bowsprit sits above the surface, 
Most of the men aboard have by this point jumped and either succeeded or failed in making their way to the island. The corpses of those who failed, they often make it, but the occasional lucky or maybe unlucky few survivors, they have also made it, adding yet more mouths to the hoard that needs to be watered. But on the ship, one person seems to be holding on to the bowsprit for dear life. And that lone soul on a sinking ship is Geronimus. After 10 days of leading a mass session of drunkenness, hedonism, and contemplating impending death, he has gone slightly deranged. Like some cat stuck on a bobbing basket in a river, he has made himself as small as possible on the tip of the great ship whilst waiting for a miracle. He cannot swim, so he cannot bring himself to jump for it. Instead, he's decided to lash himself on, hope for the best, and be glad that even if he dies, at least there is no hell for him to go to. In the middle of the night, with one last shudder, the bowsprit breaks and plunges with Geronimus attached into the water. The Batavia, once the most complex and modern machine ever built, is no more. In the morning, we are helping Viba Hayes make a raft out of driftwood so as to try to explore the other islands for water. We look out and we see something floating in from amongst the reef. The waves lifting the object up and forward. We see it is a big piece of wooden debris from the ship. It could be perfect for the raft, so we move towards it. As we get closer, however, we see that there is a body tied up to it. Others join us and together we drag it onto the sand. The body is cold and lifeless, surely dead. But we recognize it instantly. It's Geronimus. We all look down at his still body almost as if expecting something to happen. And then, something does. With no apparent reason why, the lower merchant suddenly begins coughing and spluttering. He rolls over and vomits up seawater. He's alive! As the crowd gathers and word spreads that Geronimus is still alive, there starts a great chatter around us. People are genuinely relieved. In the panic of the departure of Pelsart and Jakobson, it seems like almost everyone on the island had forgotten about the third man in charge of the ship. We haven't been completely abandoned at all. At last, Batavia's graveyard has a leader, an officer of the VOC, somebody who can now lead us out of this god-awful mess. That's not going to happen. And so that's where we are going to leave this week's episode of Stuff What You Tell Me. Stranded on a crappy coral island, sunburned, and contemplating whether the next thing you drink should be seagull blood or your own urine. But at least now we have a leader, a fine and upstanding pharmacist. So things are going to get better, right? 
Well, if you do think that, you've not been paying attention to the pattern of this story. In the next episode, we'll explore exactly what happens when a 17th century man with no belief in sin or wrongdoing gets to put those lack of beliefs into practice. In the meantime, we'd like to thank all of you for listening to our podcast. You can help spread the resistance by writing a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. It really helps us and only takes a few minutes. If you don't want to, then stuff you. Do it anyway. Check out our website at www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com for extra show notes, info, and the videos that we made when we visited the replica of Batavia in Lelystad, the Netherlands. Is there something you'd like an episode to be brought to you by? Please give us your suggestions on our social media. You can find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash stuffwhatyoutellme or find us on Twitter at the Stuff you Team. You can also email us at standup at stuffwhatyoutellme.com. Finally, uh, actually, no, that's it. Yeah, that's everything. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com prenatal.